Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 191 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is, for my money, the greatest screenwriter for screens big and small of the last 25 years, at least. During that time span, he wrote A Few Good Men, Malice, The American President, Sports Night, The West Wing, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Charlie Wilson's War, The Social Network, Moneyball, The Newsroom, Steve Jobs, and now Molly's Game, which also marks his very impressive directorial debut. And I would venture to say that there is nobody who can match those credits within that time span. The average Joe or Jane doesn't know the names or work of many writers, but they know the name Sorkin, and they know it's synonymous with quality and style. His style of exploring provocative moral dilemmas through smart and fast-paced dialogue, soaring speeches, and romantic idealism. Heck, at this point, his last name has even been turned into a verb, with eyes as a suffix. Of course, I'm talking about the truly extraordinary Aaron Sorkin. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by John Frosch, THR's reviews editor who oversees our stable of critics, among them Todd McCarthy for film, Tim Goodman for TV, and David Rooney for theater, and also reviews films himself. Frosch previously spent a number of years in Paris, first as an online editor and contributing writer at the International Herald Tribune, and then at France 24, where he ultimately became film editor and critic. He also contributed criticism to The Atlantic, The Village Voice, and other major publications before relocating to L.A. to join us at THR. John Frosch, thank you for joining me. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. So you recently were one of the 50 or so film critics who were in the room, part of the vote for the L.A. Film Critics Association Awards. Some others in the room include... People who write for THR like Todd McCarthy and Stephen Farber, as well as some other names that film buffs will recognize, David Anson, Leonard Maltin, Joe Morgenstern from the LA Times, Kenneth Rand and Justin Chang, and on and on and on. Can you just set the scene? I mean, to some extent, people in the public can now follow what you guys do because it's tweeted as it unfolds. We even know when you're taking a lunch break. But what actually goes on on that day? We all get together and basically vote on our favorite performances and films and technical contributions of the year. And there's a first round vote in which we each give our top three weighted. So the first choice gets three points, second choice, two points, third choice, one point. And then for every category, there's three. And that's done out loud so everyone can sort of judge everyone else's picks. And then (laughs) the second round is a private paper ballot and it's between the two top finishers. Where does it take place? It takes place at one of the critics' houses, actually. And people get pretty fired up about this, right? There's some passionate debates. There, there's some passionate debates. People are generally pretty respectful. This year, it was interesting because pretty much every category except for one, I would say, was hotly contested yeah. and extremely close. It's come out that the closest one, I guess, was actually Best Film, where a one-vote margin made the difference between your personal favorite movie of the year, so I assume you actually tipped the scales here. I did. And the number two finisher. So can you tell us what happened with Best Film? Yeah, Best Film, we ended up giving it to Call Me By Your Name, which won by one vote, though I will give one little piece of behind-the-scenes information. Two people who were not there would have voted for Call Me By Your Name. So the margin, margin, (laughs) but but there might have been absentees who, who would have voted Florida Project, too. Who knows? So Florida Project was number two. Florida Project, meanwhile, has been steadily picking up its own accolades from critics around the country. But the big ones that we pay attention to, obviously, are New York Film Critics Circle and L.A. Film Critics Association. I guess we have to say that for people who are trying to read the tea leaves for the Oscars, these are interesting to look at, but there is not necessarily a correlation because there are not Academy members in these critics groups and there are not critics in the Academy. However, you guys in the last 
two years actually were among the few groups that anticipated both Best Picture upsets, Spotlight and then Moonlight. And now we have to say also that prior to that, this century, there was only the Hurt Locker. But I know that's not that's not what you're trying to do here. Some groups, I think, like to claim that they were on the same page as the Academy. You guys, in a way, actually pride yourselves on not being that, right? I, I'd say that's accurate. If anything, I'd say the impulse is more to recognize and honor films and performances that might not be recognized by the Academy. And in, in this year, that didn't happen to be the case, mm-hmm. but that has been the case several times in the last few years. Well, I will say, as somebody who follows you guys closely, there are definitely times, and this is no knock on the examples that I will mention, but people, even in the film community, are sometimes left asking, like, wait, who is that? Or what film was that? Last year, for example, the Best Supporting Actress winner was Lily Gladstone for a movie called Certain Women. She was great, Scott. Yeah, so no, tell me. I mean, explain why is that more about that people truly felt that's the Best Supporting Actress performance of the year, or it's a matter of we want to try to push this onto the radar of these other groups? I think people genuinely liked her performance. There's also a phenomenon in voting where we go around the room for the first round and someone will say a name and then someone else there's kind of a, an effect where people start saying that name. They hadn't necessarily thought of that right. name, but they like the idea of it. So that might have happened with her. I don't remember. There was definitely support. And I think, you know, we don't want to just rubber stamp other critics groups or go with the people that, you know, all the awards analysts like yourself have been telling <laughs> us are going to win. Well, how much of a desire is there to separate yourselves from the New York film critics circle? It seems like you very rarely overlap. And let's just note for listeners This year, Best Film, L.A., Call Me By Your Name, New York, Lady Bird, Best Director, L.A., Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water, and Luca Guadagnino, Call Me By Your Name, in a tie, sort of a cop-out. And then Best Director for New York, Sean Baker, The Florida Project. Best Actor was one of the rare points of agreement here, Timothy Chalamet for Call Me By Your Name. For both groups, you said this was actually the one that was a runaway with the... L.A. It, critics, right? That that was the one category I'd say where it was not even close. Okay. It was it was clear that there was a Chalamet train and people were getting on <laughs> getting it on. really quick. <laughs> but it's funny you say a cop out for tie, but it's purely mathematical. Like the second round vote, it's just about numbers. So there's no. Tie, I guess you can't break the tie. Yeah, I guess either. not. To answer your question, yes. I would say there is definitely a contrarian strain in LAFCA, and I'm okay. sure in other critics groups. You definitely don't want to give multiple awards that are the same as the group that just came before you. But in certain cases where there's overwhelming support, as there was for Chalamet, it's not even really a a question. So just continuing here for Best Actress LA, Sally Hawkins, The Shape of Water, Best Actress New York, Saoirse Ronan, Lady Bird. Best Supporting Actor is another rare point of agreement. Both LA and New York go with Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project. Best Supporting Actress, LA goes with Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird and New York goes for Tiffany Haddish for Girls Trip. So these are interesting picks. I wonder, though, I want to ask you, it seems like, how much do you think critics' personal ideology gets into these things? I mean, is there a desire? Sometimes it feels like, more with critics groups than with other awards groups, there's a desire to make sure that we have a female filmmaker that's recognized or a person of color that's recognized or a LGBTQ movie that's recognized. And there's nothing, I'm not in any way suggesting there's anything wrong with those types of people being recognized, but is there more of a, let's make sure we check off somebody at some point who fits these various criteria? I don't think it's as sort of calculated as that. I'll say that there's probably a generation of critics, the older critics who are not sort of ideological at all. Mm -hmm. 
and then younger critics who are more sort of plugged into the the debates of the moment and concerns over diversity who might you know champion films and performances and filmmakers that might not have as much support from critics who are not interested in such things i don't think there's any sense of you know quotas Mm -hmm. or affirmative action in these critics picks Mm -hmm. but i think right now there is a desire among a lot of critics to highlight work that might have been ignored in previous years how about a snob factor i mean a lot of people in the general public i guess there's never been a wider gulf between what film critics tell the public they should see and what the public then goes and sees i know you we can't s- you can't tell me that tiffany haddish is a snobby pick. no that but that was new york we're taught let's let's focus okay, on your group here. On LA, yeah. okay i think that on the one hand there's never been a wider gulf between what critics say and what the public wants however i guess rotten tomatoes the aggregation of what you guys say does sway a certain audience and so with both of those considerations being the case, why, though, are there some movies that the public loves that I think are most people would agree are pretty good that still don't show up anywhere with these critics groups or very what you, rarely? What are you thinking of? I, Tanya, for instance, is, a, I thought, a pretty— That, that was in the conversation. For, it was? Yeah. But then there's also ones where I think you almost get punished because you're being compared to your previous work or because you are now being made by a major studio. Like, why would The Post or Dunkirk, movies that— you know, most people, when they see them, respond very favorably to. Why are they almost totally absent from these critics groups? First of all, I think The Post and Dunkirk were both in our conversation for certain categories. Mm-hmm. They certainly weren't prevalent. Right. Dunkirk, I think part of the issue is that, you know, that film came out in July. And because it's possibly more of a technical achievement, there's not necessarily really memorable characters. I love the movie. Mm-hmm. It's on my top 10. Mm-hmm. But they're not necessarily super memorable characters or performances that kind of fades from people's minds. And I think there's a sense with The Post that while it's a really solid and well-told story and timely, it's not Spielberg's best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Spielberg is someone who gets a lot of attention. He, he doesn't need us to give him more. If a movie like The Post was labeled, you know, directed by Joe Smith and you went and saw it, would it be evaluated differently by critics? We would know it's Spielberg just by, the, <laughs> just, just by those last 15 minutes. <laughs> But I mean, it's kind of, it seems unfair that somebody is, you know, when you've done great work in the past, unlike most people, you're not evaluated based on what your competition is that year, but rather against your own best work. You're you're punished for setting such a high bar for yourself. So you're saying we're grading on a curve and downgrading Spielberg this year. Well, do you think, though, that certain filmmakers are graded on a curve? It blew my mind that Inherent Vice, for instance, the last Paul Thomas Anderson movie before his 2017 one, Phantom Thread, Critics were falling all over themselves were for the. They? I think there was quite a bit of that oh. this year. We're seeing some of that with Alexander Payne for downsizing, Olivier Assayas. Well, some internally we <laughs> so, have a. I think, Todd McCarthy, I think we can we big, can reveal is number one yeah. movie of the year, and there are others that are say. Now I'm not in any way meaning to disrespect. These are great filmmakers, but not every time out are they going to be great. I guess this relates to the Spielberg conversation, and yet I feel like sometimes. Because their name is the one that's associated with the movie, they are perhaps graded on a curve. You know, there are certain critics that subscribe 150% to the auteur theory and, you know, are willing to give extra special attention to any any film from a certain filmmaker. I think Paul Thomas Anderson is someone who has such a passionate following that, you know, no matter what he does, there will be critics who are passionately in favor of it. I think this year he happens to have made a, a good movie. It's not one of my favorites, and I think, 
you know, it's incredibly beautiful to look at. Yes. I don't really think it amounts to much or right. means very much, right. but it's not surprising at all that people would would be championing that movie. The worst thing that you can show to any of these critics groups is a movie that looks like it was tailor-made for the Oscars, right? Oscar bait. The critical community has totally rejected the movie Darkest Hour. Well, that's probably because it's not very good, but also <laughs> also because yeah, we, we were told from the beginning, and this is not to say that we're purely contrarians, right. but we were told as soon as this movie screened that Gary Oldman had it in the bag. This right. was his year. It was his time. And in reality, it's a, it's like a perfectly entertaining, totally hammy, scenery-chomping performance. Not necessarily that exciting. Did the scene on the train put you over the top? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I, it's, a, it's a really juicy, fun performance. But, you know, being told that it's the greatest, and especially for an actor who's so idiosyncratic and had so many interesting roles and performances, for him to be honored by the Academy for his most kind of Oscar pandering performance is sort of annoying. But yeah, that performance, I will tell you at Lafka had almost zero support. Interesting. Are there any movies that you really loved and thought that your fellow critics would join you in getting behind, but where that ended up not being the case? This year, not really. This year, I felt like I was lucky in that a lot of my picks had broad support in the group. And the ones that didn't, you know, the winners that we had that I didn't necessarily love, I was totally fine with. So this year, that wasn't so much the case. This year, I felt very much right down the middle. And it does seem like if we were to collectively summarize the way that critics groups around the country are breaking at this point, it seems like Lady Bird is the best reviewed movie of the year. We've been hearing actually that it's the movie with the most reviews on Rotten Tomatoes to still maintain a 100% close behind it, I think, are Get Out and Call Me By Your Name. And it looks like the Florida Project is gaining on those, but those seem to be the, the critics' picks of the year. Yeah, I would say that this this year is exciting. And, and to tell you, no offense, but I usually try and keep my distance from Oscar prognosticating <laughs> and the Oscar race. But this year, I find it actually really kind of addictive and interesting because it's so open. And it seems like there's sort of evenly distributed support for a handful of movies. When you say Lady Bird is the best reviewed, I think I love Lady Bird. It's like my second favorite movie of the year. I also think it's the kind of movie that's hard to not like. So I don't think it's necessarily many people's absolute favorite movie of the year but it's a lot of people's second third fourth seventh well in a way that sort of is akin to moonlight last year and that with the way the academy voting for best picture ends up working can be the best thing in the world because it's not the movie necessarily that gets the most votes in the first round where you see the number one votes it's actually the movie that's number two or three at worst on most ballots so moonlight you know, everybody thought La La Land was going to win last year at the Oscars, and it ended up probably with the most number one votes. But unless you tip over, I think, 50 percent in the first round, you basically work backwards to find the consensus choice with the Academy. And it seems like one of these movies, whether it's Lady Bird or Get Out or Call Me By Your Name, maybe even The Florida Project, could end up being more of a consensus choice than the ones that people have assumed would be the winner, like The Post or even Dunkirk. I think Call Me By Your Name and The Florida Project are not consensus choices in that I think that the people who love those movies love them really obsessively and mm-hmm. passionately, and that's like their favorite movie of the year. Mm-hmm. And the people who aren't into them are just not that. They think they're fine. You're probably right. The Maybe Post Lady Bird, seems like yeah. more of a consensus pick and, and Lady Bird. I guess not with, with critics. Well, let's close by going over 
your actual top 10. We can break this news on this podcast here. Okay. Let's start at number 10. You do have Dunkirk. Yeah, Dunkirk is one of those movies, that, you know, when I saw it in the theater, an IMAX 70 millimeter, it was just this overpowering experience. And you really feel like Christopher Nolan is sort of pushing the form and telling a war story in a way we haven't seen before. Number nine, Get Out. Get Out, you know, aside from being one of the most entertaining movies of the year, does something really fresh and interesting with the horror genre by injecting it with this kind of new sociopolitical relevance and urgency. In addition to being pretty funny. In addition to being pretty funny, that's right. Number eight, Raw, a movie that I must say I am not familiar with. Raw is the movie that had certain people vomiting at the screenings because it's a, about cannibals in a French veterinary school. It's actually not that. It, it's bloody and gory, but also really kind of unpredictable and interesting. One of those movies where you don't know what's going to happen from scene to scene. And the filmmaker is a young woman who's new to me, at least, and a really exciting talent. Number seven, God's Own Country. God's Own Country, totally under the radar. It's a gay love story that takes place in the British countryside. It premiered at Sundance and was quickly and understandably overshadowed by Call Me By Your Name as the other Sundance Mm. gay love story. But this is a really just kind of rough but also beautiful film about two people who you would never imagine falling in love, falling in love. Number six, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, a movie that it's interesting to see, I think, Critics are not in agreement on so this. It's one. a little polarizing, yeah. yeah. I mean, even where I sit in our office, there are people who love it and people who despise it. Mm-hmm. I really, really like it. I think it's one of those movies where not everything works, but the director takes a lot of risks and it sort of sneaks up on you with, with a lot of emotion that you didn't expect. And it's also really dark and really funny and a kind of really bold mix of, of tones. Number five out of Chile, A Fantastic Woman. Fantastic Woman is yet another, I mean, this year is, has been like a landmark year for queer cinema, just fantastic. And this movie is about a trans woman whose boyfriend dies unexpectedly, and she has to deal with his very unwelcoming, unkind family. It's fantastic. Number four, on a much bigger scale, although actually not a huge budget at all, it's deceptive, is The Shape of Water. Shape of Water, which I I feel like is another movie that certain people just don't like. I loved it. I think it's one of those movies that shouldn't really work. It's this genre mashup of love story and monster movie and spy movie. Musical even. Musical, and it's just totally weird and gorgeous, and I loved it. Out of your beloved France, number three is BPM, Beats Per Minute. Yeah, so this is a movie about AIDS activists in Paris in the 90s, and it's totally, it's not really what you'd expect when you hear that pitch. It's really unsentimental, and it's mostly about strategizing, and you know, you see a lot of these meetings where people talk about how to change public opinion, and it's really, really impressive. Number two, Lady Bird? Lady Bird, I mean, how do you not love Lady Bird? It was, I fell in love with that movie when I saw it. It made me want to call my mom right after and tell her I love her. Mm-hmm. And then number one, as we said earlier, for John Frosch, is Call Me By Your Name. And just what is it about that that to you makes it the best movie of 2017? I mean, Call Me By Your Name is not just my favorite movie of the year. I think it's like far and away the best movie wow. of the year and kind of crushes anything else. <laughs> it was It's kind of annoying because I saw it at Sundance in January and nothing even came close in the 11 months following. It's just, to me, one of those movies where there's this perfect harmony between the source material, the director, 
and the actors and sort of everything unfolds as it should and it just totally transports you or it transported me not just to a specific time and place that the director conjures so beautifully but also to a very specific emotional experience which is falling in love for the first time very unexpectedly as as a young person. Well, thank you for this terrific look inside the world of film criticism. I know here in the uh, Oscar blogosphere, we're often seen as adversaries, but you know, I think it, it's nice that this year, so many of these movies that you've mentioned are actually in the conversation. So there's some overlap and I appreciate you shedding light on it. Thank you, John Frosch. Thanks, Scott. And now for my conversation with Aaron Sorkin. I sat down with the 56-year-old in his office on the Warner Brothers lot which is adorned with the Oscar he won for the screenplay of The Social Network, the Golden Globes he won for the screenplays of The Social Network and Steve Jobs, the Writers Guild of America awards that he won for The West Wing and The Social Network, plus the WGA's 2017 Patty Chayefsky Laurel Award, as well as the two Peabody Awards and four Best Drama Series Emmys, plus two other Emmys that he won for The West Wing. Over the course of our conversation, we discussed a wide range of topics, among them, What the crazy series of events were through which a guy who intended to be an actor wound up a writer instead by way of being a bartender at Broadway theaters and sleeping on the futon in the tiny studio apartment of an ex-girlfriend. How the 1989 stage version and 1992 film version of A Few Good Men, which he wrote on napkins, put him on the map. And how, despite resulting massive success and momentum, he fell into drug addiction that nearly cost him everything. How his 1995 film The American President inadvertently led to his first foray into television, The West Wing, which ran on NBC from 1999 through 2006, picking up a record-tying four Best Drama Series Emmys spanning 2000 through 2003 and helping to usher in the platinum age of TV. Why he's admittedly much more comfortable writing dialogue, including iconic lines like a few good men's You Can't Handle the Truth, than story, and why he places such an emphasis on the openings of his movies, The most famous example being the nine-page, five-minute rapid-fire exchange that opens the social network. How he has handled controversy, like that caused as a result of the 2014 Sony hack. And criticism, most notably about the way he has portrayed women in his work. And how Molly's Game, his first film with a female protagonist, namely Molly Bloom, a former Olympic-level skier who winds up running bi-coastal poker games that land her in the sights of the FBI and the Russian mob, ought to put those concerns to bed once and for all. Plus, much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Sorgan, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. We always begin just with the basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Okay. Well, I was born in Manhattan. I lived there until I was eight years old when my family moved to Scarsdale, about 30, 40 minutes outside of Manhattan. My Father's lawyer was he passed away last Christmas. Oh, sorry, I appreciate that. And my mother, a public school teacher. And what sort of a kid were you? The jock, the nerd, something else? And and as a kid, what did you dream of doing? I guess I was a nerd, <laughs> a proud nerd. I was in the marching band. I was the vice president of the drama club, president of the student council, that kind of thing. And what I dreamt of doing at that age was I wanted to be an actor. For me, writing was just a chore to be gotten through for a school assignment. And it wasn't until college, really the the end of college, the very end of my senior year, that for the first time I tried writing for pleasure. I tried writing dialogue and just loved it and never looked back. As I understand it, that first time you tried, it's kind of 
an interesting story because it was really a thing of fate, right? It was. It was a complete accident. I, I had moved to New York to begin my life as a starving artist. And I was sleeping. I was I was renting the floor of my ex-girlfriend's studio apartment. And I don't mean she's my ex-girlfriend now. I mean, she was my Already. ex-girlfriend then. <laughs> and in fact, was now dating my best friend. Oh. But things like that don't matter when you're trying to somehow pay your bills in New York City. So for $250 a month, I I got to sleep on her futon in what was a very tiny studio apartment. And one Friday, a friend from high school, he had also just graduated from college, and he was beginning his career as a struggling journalist. Mm -hmm. He had with him his grandfather's semi-automatic typewriter. It's a typewriter with electric keys, but a manual return. Mm-hmm. He was going out of town for the weekend with his girlfriend. He didn't want to schlep it around with him. So he asked me if, if I could hang on to it for the weekend. And it's Friday night now. And it's one of those Friday nights where you feel like everyone in the world has been invited to a party that you haven't been invited <laughs> to. No one was around. I didn't have $3 in my pocket. I'm sure it was raining outside. And my ex-girlfriend, roommate, she was out of town for the weekend as well. She was touring as Strawberry Shortcake in the (laughs) Strawberry Shortcake children's show. And for some reason, none of, like the television wasn't working, the stereo wasn't working in the apartment. The only thing I could think of to do to entertain myself was to stick a piece of paper in my friend's grandfather's semi-automatic typewriter. And I did, and that was the time I I started writing dialogue. I started, it was just meant for fun for me. And I stayed up all night writing and writing and writing. And I I feel like that night never ended, that that I'm still in that night. I guess I have to ask you, what became of what you started writing that night? That's an interesting question. What, What became of it, it ultimately would become a play that I wrote that it got a lot of attention. It was given a bunch of staged readings around town with with very good actors like Matthew Broderick and Kevin Bacon and Tracy Pollan. And it became embroiled actually in a lawsuit between two producers who each claimed that they had a right to produce it. And, you know, this this was devastating for me. It, it seemed like lightning had struck and the very first play that I wrote was going to be in some manner produced. But instead, there were just a lot of letters going back and forth. But while all that was happening, my older sister, Debbie, had just graduated from law school. She signed up immediately with the Navy Judge Advocate General's Corps, and she called me and said, you're never going to believe where I'm going tomorrow. <laughs> we have The Navy has a base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, that nobody's very familiar with, and there's an incident that uh, happened down there. And so w- while all the... F- Legal stuff was going on with that first play that I wrote. I wrote A Few Good Men. And everything worked out very well because yeah. that, that first play was terrible. And <laughs> it was like every playwright's first play. So my first play got to be A Few Good Men instead. And the story of that is amazing in itself to me as well because you weren't sort of sticking around at home writing A Few Good Men on this friend's typewriter or anything. You were still having to bring in the dough, bring oh, in the bacon. Yeah, I, you know... Like everybody, I had a ton of survival jobs, <laughs> waiting tables, driving cabs, taking tickets, I dressed up as a moose and handed <laughs> out leaflets. But my main survival job was bartending at Broadway theaters. And at 
This time I, I was bartending at the Palace Theater for La Caja Fall, the original production of La Caja Fall. Mm-hmm. And as a bartender, you have nothing to do during the first act, right? You get there, you set up your bar, and you work the walk-in. That's the half hour before curtain. And then you wait until intermission when you're going to work again. And so I wrote A Few Good Men mostly on cocktail napkins <laughs> at the main lobby bar at the Palace Theater. That's amazing. I would come home with my pockets stuffed with cocktail napkins, kind of dump them out on my desk. My two roommates and I, three of us had chipped in and bought this new thing called a Macintosh. <laughs> and I would start typing up the napkins. Mm-hmm. Now, why do you think you fell in love with writing and, and with dialogue in particular? What was the, if you could psychoanalyze yourself? If I could psychoanalyze myself, I would say this. My parents began taking me to see plays at a very young age. Neither of them are in show business. They just, they grew up with a theater going habit. And when they were young, theater was affordable for a young public school teacher and a lawyer making $40 a week. And so they took me to see plays when I was young. And oftentimes those plays, I was too young to understand them. You know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when I was nine years old, that kind of thing. But I loved being in the theater anyway because I loved the sound of dialogue. It it sounded like music to me. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I mentioned Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. While there are other kids who were listening to original cast albums at home, you know, show tunes, which I listen to too. I'm crazy about musicals. My public library had the original cast album of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a double album with the Broadway cast doing it the way you would record a musical. And I would listen to that over and over. And again, I'm thinking about it now. I I can't recall a time I was ever listening to it and understanding (laughs) really what was going on. I certainly got that there was tension in this marriage that I understood and that the house guests were not having a great time. But what I was listening to was here comes the big aria and now here comes the duet and here comes the drum solo and that kind of thing. And so I just grew up loving the sound of dialogue, and I wanted to imitate that sound. That was noticed as early as A Few Good Men, your first produced anything that you'd written. I want to ask you, though, the story about where that came to be mounted first is kind of interesting, because you were not really in the strongest negotiating position, and yet when you were offered the chance to have, you know, well, maybe let me leave it it to you. Yeah, I did something that wasn't so much courageous as naive. (laughs) What happened was I wrote the play, or I I finished one of many, many drafts of the play. And by then I'd gotten an agent because while I was writing the play, I stopped for four days. Let me first say this. It never even occurred to me at that time to try coming to Los Angeles, that LA is a slightly better place. They're both hard, but it's a slightly better place to get a toehold as a professional writer. You can get hired as a writer's assistant. You can be an intern. You can write a spec script and send it around. But I liked movies and television as much as anyone else. I just, I I never put two and two together and thought about writing them. I just thought about writing plays. And in New York, the way to get that toehold is there are one-act play festivals. They're very good. They're produced nicely. They, They get good actors, good directors. 
And I wrote a one act that was accepted at one of these festivals and critics came to see it and they liked it. And that's how I got an agent. So I took a completed draft of A Few Good Men, gave it to my agent. The agent read it, called me the next day and said, this is very good. We're going to send it to our West Coast office. We think we might be able to get you staffed up on a television show. And anyone else would have popped champagne and and gotten the next (laughs) plane to L.A. And I said, well, that sounds nice, but what about doing the play? And my agent said, well, don't be ridiculous. It's a... It's a 22-character play by a then 26-year-old playwright that no one's ever heard of. It's too big to do anywhere but Broadway. Nobody's doing new American plays anyway. That That's a pipe dream. That's never going to happen. That night, <laughs> the agent was at a performance of Tony and Tina's Wedding. If you know anything about Tony and Tina's wedding, you know it's a kind of interactive experience between the cast and the audience. And so you and I could be having this conversation during a performance of Tony and (laughs) Tina's wedding and no one would shush us. It would be appropriate. (laughs) My agent was there and standing next to the development director for a great producer who died just a few years ago named David Brown. Mm. David Brown, along with his partner, Richard Zanuck, produced more great movies than your podcast has time uh, uh, for me to mention, but he did produce The Sting and Jaws and The Verdict and Tora, Tora, Tora. Again, the list goes on. He's also, he was really the last of the gentleman producers. He you know, had a pencil mustache and he was a very, very gentlemanly man. He was married to Helen Gurley Brown. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my agent is at Tony and Tina's wedding, standing next to David Brown's uh, director of development. And the director of development said, you know, David had a great time making the verdict and really wants to do another courtroom drama. Do you know of anything? <laughs> I just said, well, a couple of days later, I was in David Brown's office. He'd just come back from Africa and had read the script on the way. And he said, I want to buy the film rights to this play. And that's where I just started to get stupid because <laughs> I knew from my years of, of, you know, I started reading Variety when I was 10 years old. I knew that once he disposed of the film rights to a play, that that play became significantly less attractive to producers Mm -hmm. to produce because the producer of a Broadway play, once it's vested, which I think happens after 20 performances or something like that, the producer gets 50% of what the author made from the film rights. So it was a big source of income that I would be denying anyone who wanted to produce Mm -hmm. the play. And I said that to David Brown. Well, that by the my, way, you're still working at bars and I'm stuff. I'm still a bartender. Yes. <laughs> I, I've now been told, well, we, we can staff you up on a television show, and now David Brown is going to give you a check and, and buy the film rights, and I'm saying no, <laughs> still. And then he said, okay, well, what if I were to produce the play? My streak of <laughs> nuttiness was not going to be over yet. Right. I said, David, have you ever produced a play? <laughs> and he said, no, I, I haven't ever produced a play. But what I'll do is I'll partner up with Robert Whitehead. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> now we were talking. Robert Whitehead, he is a legendary Broadway producer. Robert, in his career, produced the Broadway debuts of Arthur Miller, William Inge, Tennessee Williams, <laughs> and in a stunning anticlimax, me. <laughs> So once 
David was partnered up with Robert Whitehead. I said, of course. And, let's do and, it. Let's yeah. do the play. You can have the film rights. <laughs> and that was a great day. And the, the show was tremendously received. The film was tremendously received. And all of, a, all of a sudden, I don't know if it felt like all of a sudden to you, but now people do know who Aaron Sorkin is. And I just wonder what that period between the 92 film production of A Few Good Men and the 95 production of The American President, your, your first and third screenplays that became films in between was Malice in 93. Mm-hmm. But those two were Rob Reiner ones that got a lot of attention. Rob Reiner directed films. A lot of people might assume that those were some of the best years of your life. My understanding is the exact opposite was Yeah, the that, case. that's right. Because I, I never did any drugs in high school. I never smoked weed. Never did. I didn't even really drink. And I never did any drugs in college. It wasn't until right around the period that you're talking about that I was introduced to cocaine and quickly became a cocaine addict. And it was in 95 that I went to rehab, a great place called Hazleton in Center City, Minnesota. So while those days were heady and I was what they call a, a high-functioning addict, mm-hmm. I could work, I was nonetheless a cocaine addict and I was behaving like one. And to be honest with you, I don't have many memories, fond or otherwise, of those years that you're talking about because I was high all the time. Now, was it just, did you feel pressure because you now were famous or be, or was it because you suddenly had money or what was the, you know, not to get too personal and stop me if it is. It's but- not. I don't think that it had anything to do with pressure, money. I don't think it had anything to do with external forces. I think I tried cocaine It is what happened. And it is, it's an incredibly addictive drug. And that's all that happened. This April, I'll have 18 years clean. Congratulations. Thanks. And when people bring up issues like, you know, well, are are you worried about the stress that you might relapse? It really really doesn't work like that. If you're an addict or an alcoholic, you don't need a reason to get high or to use. You use because you're an addict or an alcoholic. I understand it was during that time and maybe specifically working on Malice that you met somebody who became a mentor to you and a, a pretty great screenwriter in his own right. Yeah, we're talking about William Goldman. He'd been a hero of mine well before I met him. Your audience is probably familiar with his work, but just in case, mm-hmm. he is the two-time Academy Award winning writer of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Princess Bride, All the President's Men, Marathon Man, and a great nonfiction book, Adventures of the Screen Trade. Another great nonfiction book called The Season, where he examines Broadway by looking at the 1968-1969 Broadway season, and another great nonfiction book called Hype and Glory. Yes, Ken uh, and Miss America. Yeah, he in one in the same year he was asked to judge the Cannes Film Festival right. and the Miss America pageant, right. and he uses that as a structure to tell some very interesting stories. Right. Anyway, William Goldman to me was a deity and still is, and when Castle Rock actually hired me to write Malice before they owned A Few Good Men. Really? A Few Good Men was bought by TriStar, and they put it in turnaround. And Castle Rock picked it up. But they had already... Here's what happened with Malice. They heard a pitch from a writer. The writer was pitching a thriller based on a rumor that had been going around Hollywood that a Beverly Hills surgeon 
and a young woman had conspired to defraud a medical malpractice insurance company that he operated on her, screwed up the operation on purpose in a non-life-threatening right. way. And she sued for $20 million. There was a settlement. They split the money. <laughs> and that's a pretty good premise for a thriller. Yeah. And they So they, they bought the pitch. They hired this writer. They weren't happy with what the writer brought them. So they went to William Goldman, who had done Misery with them and The Princess Bride with them, and said, this seems right up your alley. And he said, it, it is right up my alley. I love it. But I don't have time to do it right now. Why don't you go identify some new young writer, read cheap, and <laughs> I'll take that writer under my wing and I'll, uh, I'll guide them. And my play, A Few Good Men, which was about to go into rehearsal, I hadn't opened or anything, it was about to go into rehearsal, but the script was making its way around. People were reading it. And Castle Rock identified me as that writer. Mm -hmm. And so my phone rang one day and the voice on the other end said, uh, hey, Aaron, it's Bill Goldman. Do you want to have lunch tomorrow? <laughs> I thought, do, do I have a friend who can do like a Bill Goldman voice? <laughs> we met for lunch the next day, shook hands. And, and I think before we even sat down, before we even made it down to the chairs, he said, listen, I, I read the play and, and you're a talented young writer, but... I don't think there's any way we're going to be able to do this because you've you've never written a screenplay. You've never even written a, a, a lousy TV pilot. We're not going to really have a vocabulary that, that we can work with. And I was disappointed, obviously, but it was also kind of awkward because we hadn't even ordered lunch yet. I didn't know, was I, should I leave now? Well, what's the protocol here when you've, you've lost the job before the interview right. begins? So I did stay for lunch. We we talked about the Mets. We talked about a number of things. And toward the end of the lunch, I said, you know, look, I'm not going to pretend that I have the kind of experience that you're looking for, but maybe I can convince you that that kind of experience isn't necessary here. And he put his hand across the table and said, yeah, OK, you got a deal. Let's do this. So <laughs> that was the beginning. Yeah. That's uh, amazing. And just to quickly note something that I think I glossed over. The way that I guess Tom Cruise came to be a part of A Few Good Men was Nicole saw the Broadway production. Then American President leads to West Wing. And I just want to ask you if you can explain that, as I understand it, your agent says you, sh you should meet with John Wells. Having made a bunch of these these first few films, maybe it's worth meeting with this important TV guy. That's right. I had done those first three movies, A Few Good Men, Malice, The American President. And you're absolutely right, Mike. And John Wells had exploded onto the scene at the time as not just a not just a successful producer, but a, a producer of classy material, China Beach and, and ER. And my agent said, you know, have have lunch with him, meet with him, e even though I had never thought about television, just like I'd never thought about movies, but wound up doing that. I'd, I'd never thought about television. So this lunch was set, and the, the night before the lunch, I happened to have some friends over for dinner, and one of them was Akiva Goldsman, who had not yet won the Academy Award for writing A Beautiful Mind. Mm. And during dinner, Akiva and I kind of snuck down to the uh, little office that I kept at home to sneak a cigarette. <laughs> and I had mentioned to him that I had this meeting the next day with John Wells. And he said, oh, you're thinking about doing television? I said, no, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any ideas uh, for television. <laughs> I'm just, it's lunch, that's all. Right. And so went down to the office and he sees the American president poster on the wall and he said, 
you know, we'd make a good TV series, that, pointing at the American president poster. And he said, you know, if you don't do the romance between the, the widow president and the lobbyist. You, you focus more on the senior staff. And I said, Kiwi, I'm okay, but I'm not doing a television series. Went to the lunch the next day and walked into the restaurant and immediately saw that this wasn't a friendly, <laughs> let's get to know each other lunch because John was there with a bunch of Warner Brothers executives and a bunch of CAA agents. There were five or six people at the table before I sat down. And I sat down and John said, okay, what do you want to do? The smart thing to say, the true thing to say would have been, I'm sorry, I think there's been a misunderstanding. I've got nothing to pitch to you. I just wanted to meet you and, and <laughs> say hello and, and then I admire your work. Instead of doing that, I said, I want to write a series about senior staffers at the White House, which was the only thing I could think of right. because Akiva had said it to me the night before. And John, <laughs> just like Bill Goldman, said, okay, you got a deal. And I, I walked out of there in a daze thinking, it's just happened. I right. And I, I wasn't thinking, I've got to write a television series now. I was thinking, I've got to write a pilot now. Right. And that'll be that. But, you know, still, I, I'm going to write a one-hour pilot script. And you're not, you say, particularly political yourself. So the idea that you would now be immersing yourself in the world of politics, it's not like it was something you were drooling to do, right? That's right. No, my background in politics is, is this. When I was in sixth grade, there was a girl in my class named Jenny Lavin who I really liked. And she was volunteering after school at the local McGovern for President headquarters. And so I thought it'd be a good idea if I did too. You know, so we went there two, three days a week after school and stuffed envelopes. And one weekend, they put all of us volunteers in a couple of school buses, drove us to the next town over White Plains, which is the county seat in Westchester, because the Nixon campaign motorcade was coming through. And I was holding up a sign that said McGovern for president. <laughs> and I was holding up this sign when a 143-year-old woman came up from behind me grabbed the sign out of my hands. Now, I was 11 years old, and she was like a foot shorter than I was. She grabbed the sign out of my hand, whacked me over the head with it, threw it on the ground, oh and stomped God. on it. And my only political agenda has has been the slim hope that that woman is still alive right. and that I'm driving her out of her mind. And how did it go with Jenny Levin? We remained friends. Okay, all right. So it was in the friend zone. <laughs> friend zone, right. Can you explain chronologically, I, if it says that Sports Night was 1998 to 2000. West Wing was 1999 to 2006. But is that just because West Wing took longer to get on the air? Or did Sports Night, was that really in motion before West Wing? They got in motion at roughly the same time. Roughly the same time. I think Sports Night may have been first by a little bit. Mm -hmm. The reason why the West Wing was a year later is because NBC didn't want to do it at first. <laughs> The management there at, at the time looked at it and said, Washington shows don't work. Shows about politics don't work. The politics in this show are pretty overt. Listen, it was you know scandalous at the time to identify a character on a television show as either a Democrat or a Republican, unless it was you know Alex Keaton on Family Ties when, when it was done broadly as, as a joke or All in the Family. Right. And by the way, I'm not sure they ever said Democrat or Republican on, on All in the Family. Mm -hmm. And here's the reason for all that. The television 
when it was just broadcast television, when the networks were in business with with the advertisers and, and it was about delivering consumers to advertisers, the goal was to alienate as few people as possible. Least objectionable. Yeah. So that's why television shows in, we can call them the old days, I guess, everybody was from a place called Springfield. And that's what The Simpsons making right. fun of. The father was a businessman, okay? Sometimes he was in advertising. Mm-hmm. He was a businessman. We didn't know how much money anybody made. It was just a middle-class family on a middle-class street. Everybody was white, obviously. <laughs> Religion was never discussed. Politics was never discussed. And it's not even so much the old days. If you look at Seinfeld, okay, in which Jerry Seinfeld is playing Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, in every regard, right? He appears on The Tonight Show. He does clubs, even has a failed TV pilot. Yes. On Seinfeld, Jerry still lives in a $1,500 a month apartment, <laughs> uh, okay? Right. That the show was not going to work if this was multi-zillionaire right. Jerry Seinfeld. Right. So NBC put the West Wing in a drawer and then changed management. Scott Sassa and Jeff Zucker came in. And they pulled it out of the drawer and they ordered it. And so even though it didn't become a hugely popular show until the second season, from what I remember, what has become an adjective, Sorkin-esque or variations thereof, was established pretty quickly. People now in maybe larger numbers, because it's network television, were seeing some of your your hallmarks of, of your style. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you, long monologues in some cases, fast-paced dialogue, and then walk and talks. <laughs> I wonder if you can just maybe briefly touch on each of those and why you think those have come to be staples of your style. Well, the first two, long speeches, fast dialogue, that's the kind of dialogue I grew up on. Again, I've, I've always enjoyed the musicality of dialogue. And, you know, if you look at the components of, of a symphony or an opera, there are going to be duets and there are going to be allegros and adagios and finale ultimos. And without the music, when it's just language, those those translate into different sounding pieces of sections of dialogue. As for the third, the walk and talk. I just have to quickly tell you, we've had Alison Janney on this podcast. We've had Elizabeth Moss. They say it was at once the most challenging, but also the most fun thing just making it happen because one thing screws it up for everybody. That's really nice to hear. That That is true. That one thing screws it up for everybody. You don't want to. I'd write like an eight page opening scene, which is a steady camp shot, a walk and talk, you know, traveling from the press briefing room through 14 rooms, ending up in the white house mess. And it's in one meaning, you know, we're not going to cut ever. It's just one single shot. If it's an eight-page scene, you do not want to be the person who screws up on page seven, (laughs) you know. And now, first of all, the reason those traveling shots happen as much as they did is because I write very little that's of visual interest on the show. It's, it's, It's people talking in rooms. And so in comes Tommy Schlamme, and this is both with Sports Night and The West Wing. Mm -hmm. And just to create some visual interest, he would come to me and say, okay, this scene where these two guys are are sitting and doing the podcast, can they get up and get a cup of coffee in the other room while they're talking and then come back just so there can be movement? I'd say, sure. 
like I said, we did it on Sports Night. Really started to do it a lot on the West Wing. The West Wing set is a pretty good replica of the West Wing, except for a couple of things. We made the corridors wider to accommodate our cameras, and we put glass in a lot of places where there would be a solid wall. We would put glass, glass doors, some kind of panel. Exactly, so that the camera would have a lot of throws, so that we could be in a corridor, see into the Roosevelt room where there'd be a meeting going on, see past that into the other corridor, and then past that into the communications bullpen, and you know, there you'd see Sam or Toby in their office. Interesting. How do you think some of the things that happened while you guys were on the air with that in the real world, stuff like Bush v. Gore, 9-11, the war in Iraq starting, how do you think those things impacted the way people consume television? It seems like it certainly didn't hurt the West Wing. It was hugely popular throughout its run, but it seems like in the years since, we have become less receptive to idealism, more cynical as viewers. I think, you know, it seems like a few years later when you did the newsroom, 2012 to 2014, which to me had a pretty similar tone in in the best sense, people were just less willing to roll with it. Yeah. In my experience, there's always been an element of the audience that doesn't like a lack of irony, okay? Doesn't like a lack of cynicism. The, the, the things that I write by and large, for the most part, are idealistic and romantic, and they look up. And really up until the West Wing, in popular culture, our leaders, our elected officials, had only been portrayed as either Machiavellian or adults. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're super stupid or they're, or they're super sinister. And I wanted to do a show about a, a group of, you know, very well-intentioned, extremely competent, people doing their best and they'll they'll slip on banana peels plenty of times but i don't know i wanted to come at it that way i was just i was less interested in in parodying our government and more interested in taking a kind of quixotic look at it there were people who were receptive to it and there were people who would have rather had it be cynical you're right then maybe 10 years or so later with the newsroom that was a different kettle of fish. First of all, I made mistakes on the newsroom. Secondly, there was a sense that because the newsroom was set in the very recent past, the West Wing was set in, in an alternate universe. Right. The West Wing was set in this universe, but just 18 to 24 months ago. There was a sense that I was leveraging hindsight into heroism that I was trying to show the pros how it was supposed to be done, that kind of thing. It was the last thing uh, on my mind was doing that. I set the show in the recent past because I didn't want to have to invent fake news stories. It wouldn't have seemed like the, the world that we knew. And I can't think of a moment in the three-year history of the show when when there was a story about our guys doing it better than the than the real guys did. With the West Wing, we were unaffected by news events except 9-11, which we were more affected by than I think any other television show. Mm-hmm. And I'd actually asked the NBC 9-11, obviously it was on September 11th. Most shows were scheduled to go back on the air. It's usually the third week in September that the new season begins. The networks had already pushed their shows a week 
to allow for the 24-hour news coverage. And I had asked Jeff Zucker to postpone our season three premiere indefinitely Mm -hmm. because here's why. While I felt that Jeff was right when he said that people want to laugh again, I agreed. But I felt that they wanted to laugh watching Friends and they wanted to laugh watching Will and Grace. Mm -hmm. ER was okay and Law and Order was okay and The Practice was okay. But our show, here was the problem. It was going to seem like everyone in the world had been affected by 9-11 except the characters on our show. Mm -hmm. For some reason, you don't expect Ross and Rachel to be talking about what happened. Right. You just want them right. at Central Perk. Right. And are right. they going to get together or not? <laughs> I don't think anybody was in the mood to see Josh and Donna flirting down the hallways when they were supposed to be dealing with terrorism. But why are they all of a sudden dealing with terrorism mm-hmm. when we never did an episode on the show that was 9-11? And how could we do an episode on the show that was 9-11 when this is a completely parallel right. universe? And why should we care about fake heroes when there are so many real heroes around? And I thought that it was a, I was obviously among the lesser casualties of 9-11, but I thought that it was going to be a fatal blow to the show. Now, it wasn't. Plainly, the show would end up running another five years yes. after that with me on it for another two years. But what I did do when the network would not postpone us indefinitely and I, I remember the conversation. I mean, just said, how long do you want? And I said, I, I don't know. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll know when it's right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe it might not be till January. It might not be until next year. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what the hell am I supposed to put on Wednesdays at 9 o'clock? And I just remember saying to him, and I wasn't joking. He thought I was. I just said, Dateline? Yeah. So what I did was I did the special episode of The West Wing, mm-hmm. which we ordinarily, from me starting the script to the show going on the air, is about six or seven weeks. And that's it's a very fast period. Both shows yeah, yeah. are better organized than that. This special episode of The West Wing we did, Isaac and Ishmael, we did in 12 days. Oh, it, yeah. it, written, shot, cut, everything in 12 days. And it was a show, the cast explains at the beginning, it's an outlier, it doesn't have anything to do with the timeline of our show. And it was received terribly mm-hmm. because, again, it was perceived that it was me lecturing America on whatever. And it wasn't. What Here's really what Isaac and Ishmael was. It was, given no other choice, given that we had to go on the air, right. it was the show bowing its head, yeah. saying, we get it. Yeah. We're, we're not doing Josh and Donna this week. We're not going back to our story and part in the MS and all that. We're doing this other thing because anything else we feel would be inappropriate. What a bind, I mean, to to deal with. But Yeah, again, one of the lesser casualties of 9-11. Yeah. Most people in the public don't know the name of one writer who creates the stuff that they watch. If they do, it's yours. And I'm sure it comes with its pros. And then it's also the cons in the sense that people have an opinion about everything. And they, you know, sometimes it can be done in a trolling way. I know, I guess that probably you first experienced maybe with Studio 60 on Sunset Strip as the internet was coming into its its own where you had the people who didn't like it, chat rooms and things that are, or blogs just were devoted to that kind of thing. But then there's fun, lighter stuff like the food room, which Josh Charles from 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, um, and inside and, Amy and Schumer. Amy Schumer. <laughs> I, I did think that was really funny. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, like, you know, are you able to totally drown this stuff out? Or when you hear people, I mean, one of the things that people have given you a hard time about, I don't fully understand it because I'm aware of C.J. Craig and some other wonderful female characters that you've written, but I wondered if the kind of ball busting over over the way you write women had anything to do with making your directorial debut with a female protagonist in the case of Molly's Game. So just in general, how you deal with outside commentary and and maybe specifically in that instance. Sure. In general, you really do just learn over time. The worst thing that can happen is if you let it affect the writing. If you find yourself writing to try to persuade people to, to convince them that they're wrong about you being a bad writer. <laughs> I understand the impulse, but it's a, bad, it's a bad road to go down. Don't do that. You learn to stay awake, stay off the internet, right. stay off of anything that's got your name on it. And if, if you manage to you know step into that dark room anyway, you don't take it very seriously. Right. I am aware it kind of went into hyperdrive with the newsroom uh, that, that I'm aware that that there are people who have issue with some of the female characters that I've written. I take issue with their issue. <laughs> but listen, once I write something and put it on a screen, put it on a stage, put it in your living room, I don't get to have anything more to say about it. I really believe that that I don't then get to come into your living room and argue with you about right. what you just saw and, <laughs> and, and why you're wrong. At that right. point, it's a painting hanging on a wall and anybody gets to say anything about it that they want. In terms of Molly's Game, absolutely nothing to do with... Proving them wrong. ...why I wanted to write right, Molly's right. Game. It was a great story. I was kind of able to see it, feel it, and I really wanted to write it. And the fact that it was... Not just a female protagonist, but I mean, she really, Jessica straps the movie on her back at the beginning of the movie and runs with it, does not stop until the uh, the end credits roll. It's, I really had a great partner in, in Jessica. So it's just a great story that I was attracted to. Before we go any further with that, I just want to connect the dots between where we were and, and Molly's Game quickly, which is this return to movies after a lot of years of focusing on TV there where in a period of relatively few years, Charlie Wilson's War, Social Network, Moneyball, and Steve Jobs, three of those, I believe, Social Network, Moneyball, and Steve Jobs, you did in, in collaboration with Amy Pascal and Scott Rudin. Mm-hmm. I think that at one point you were going to direct the Social Network. That was going to be your feature directorial debut, right? It was, but let's be clear about this directing thing. It's never been an aspiration of mine, and I've certainly never seen screenwriting as a stepping stone to another job. Sure. Screenwriting was the end for me. And, you know, going all the way back to that studio apartment in New York and the futon and the semi-automatic typewriter, my dreams weren't about winning the Academy Award and, you know, being a guest on a podcast like this. (laughs) My dreams, and I didn't consider them modest dreams at the time. I, I considered them grandiose and damn near unattainable was to simply be a professional writer, a professional script writer. I, I, I wanted to be able to pay my rent, pay my phone bill with the money that I had made writing. Mm-hmm. Everything else came and continues to come as an extraordinary shock to me and, and a gift. There isn't a day 
that I take it for granted, ever. I promise you, I still feel very much like that kid who was vice president of the drama club <laughs> and tonight's opening night and, and we're going to do a show. The social network, I wrote the social network and it was Scott Rudin who was saying, you know, I really think you should direct this. I had just had a play on Broadway, The Farnsworth Invention, mm -hmm. and there was a character in it that he saw a lot of Mark Zuckerberg in and he felt that I had a very keen understanding of this character and he wanted me to direct it, and you know he ran it by Amy, and Amy was okaying it. I had never said, "Can I direct this?" And I, I was terrified, thinking, "Do these guys know <laughs> that I can't pick a long lens out of a police lineup? Right. Do they understand?" Like, I, and we all agreed at the last minute. You know what? Let's just do this. I'm going to send it to one director. We're going to send it to David Fincher, and when he passes, I'll direct it. Right. But we sent it to Fincher, and three hours later, Fincher sent me an email that said, hey, Aaron, it's David. I'm going to direct The Social Network. Can I come over? I've never been so lucky to not get a job <laughs> in my life because I think that David did the best version of, of that movie uh, that you can do. With Molly's Game, again, I wrote it not thinking at all that I would direct it, but turned in the first draft, sat down. Again with Amy Pascal, this time with Mark Gordon. And we had a list of directors in front of us. We went through each name, name by name. And at the end, Mark and Amy said, but we think you should direct it. And this time around, and I asked them for some time to think about it. Actually, at that, that first time they asked, I didn't really say anything. I was like, I just like, I kind of outsucked it. But then they asked again and again, and I saw that they were serious. I had about three weeks to think about it. It was right before the Christmas break. They wanted an answer when we came back on January 3rd. I talked to directors that I know and respect. I talked to writers who had become writer directors. They were all very encouraging. They were all saying, you can do this. I know you think you can't, but you're wrong. You can, uh, you know how to do this. The thing that made me want to do it in the end was specific to Molly's game. It wasn't about time for me to direct. It was specific to Molly's game. And it was that I was aware that there were a number of different versions of this movie that you could do. And that there was a kind of gravitational pull toward the shiny objects in the movie. The decadence, the glamour, the money, the sex, the gossipy Hollywood movie star mm -hmm. stuff. And I had found after spending a lot of time with, with Molly and hearing, for lack of a better phrase, the real story, mm -hmm. the one that's not in the book, the reasons why certain stuff wasn't in the book, her relationship with her father, a number of things al al along the way. This became a different, much different story to me than, hey, let's talk about the Hollywood Poker Princess. You know, to me, the second best thing in the world is a story that nobody's heard. And the best thing in the world is a story that everybody thinks they've heard. Right. Well, but that's you, social network, right? That's right. And with Molly's Game, I felt that it was a very emotional story. And I wanted to protect that. And while I don't think that directing defensively is a very good idea, that I'm just, I'm going to direct to make sure nobody uh, uh, ruins this, that really wasn't what I was doing. It had turned out that in this particular case, Writing this screenplay, I just saw everything very specifically because I was surrounded by a group of people, Charlotta Christensen, our, our AD, Walter Gasparovic, our, 
a first AD, our designers, our producers, who were just right for a first director. Incredibly talented and patient. It worked out. I see, maybe I'm wrong, but I think I see other connective thread between Social Network and Molly's Game in the best sense. I think Social Network was your first Mm anti-hero. Both, though, have what you say I think is the most important thing when you sit down to start writing something, which is a great opening scene. And Social Network, it's, I don't remember if it's like six or seven minutes of just nonstop back and forth, super fast-paced, super smart between Jesse and Rooney. Here, it's giving the middle finger, in a sense, to Robert McKee with your voiceover and all of that. So I wonder if you can just say why opening scenes are so important to you and and maybe something about those ones. I like those two opening scenes very much. They're very different. One of them in the social network, just talking about two people sitting at a table in a college bar. The opening sequence for Molly's Game has more action in it than in every other movie I've ever written combined, (laughs) just in that first eight minutes or so, that opening sequence. In both cases, they tell you a tremendous amount Mm -hmm. about the protagonist. You know, a a lot of work gets done in those opening few minutes. Exposition can be one of the trickier parts of drama because it's the least natural part. So if you can find a way to do it in a fun way, you're giving yourself an advantage. In the case of Molly's Game, there is kind of a sleeper setup in there. You don't realize that something that you've been given is going to be a punchline that's mm-hmm. going to come back at the end of the movie. The setup for Molly's Game is that we have a young woman with a gold-plated future. She knows exactly what she's going to do. She's going to go to Harvard Law School with an Olympic medal around her neck. And when she gets out, she's going to start a foundation that seeds entrepreneurial women. You know, we've heard about her sterling academic career, her sterling athletic career and the fact that she bounces back you know she needed this very complicated surgery when she was 12 years old so we learn so much about her in a short period of time while people are flying down a mountain you know (laughs) that's great well the last things i hope we can do here just one final question and then what we call a rapid fire we end with just the first thing that comes to mind but first the the big picture question my humble opinion is that when people look back at these first 17 years, maybe the first two decades, whatever, of this century in Hollywood, the two biggest stories are going to be what's happening now with Harvey Weinstein and what comes of that, and also the Sony hack. Mm-hmm. Just that it's things that rock the town. And yeah. this, the latter you live through in a, in a more direct way. And I just wonder if you can summarize sort of how it unfolded from your perspective and just how Hollywood handled it or or mishandled it. From my perspective, I was at Sony physically on the lot because we were casting Steve Jobs Mm -hmm. at the time when Francine Maisler was our casting director. And I was just hearing stories about there's been this hack and showing up on our screens or these uh, very violent images. And it may or may not have something to do with Seth Rogen's movie, the interview. And then one night Amy called me at home. And uh, she was plainly upset and she plainly, I realized, was going to be at her office all night making these phone calls saying, Aaron, there are going to be some emails revealed. And she was just apologetic about what the, the content might be. 
And I told her there's no need to apologize. This is an incredible invasion of privacy. What happened next, the, the thing I was most angry at, yes, I think that Hollywood's reaction was, to say it was tepid would be to give it much too much credit. The studio should have been standing shoulder to shoulder with Sony. Mm-hmm. The other uh, majors. and yeah, Exactly. And nobody said anything. But the big deal to me was that a large chunk of of the media had colluded with terrorists you know these were honest to god terrorists our government was saying so the fbi was saying so north korean terrorists who were threatening the lives of family members of sony employees if sony released the interview and sort of document dump by document dump they gave journalists, here's the website where you can go to find the latest document dump. Just, we, we've already curated it for you. We know you're going to like this bit about this and this. And they put it there. And everybody ran the anchor leg of this relay for terrorists. And I wrote an op-ed in the Times mm-hmm. for it. The fig leaf that they tried to use was... Well, there's some newsworthy stuff in there. For instance, we see that on American Hustle, there was some pay inequality between Jennifer Lawrence and Christian Bale, yeah, yeah, yeah. to which my reaction was, oh, my God. First of all, okay, if that's the newsworthy thing, then why are you still printing you know, the studio reactions to Adam Sandler's right. movie? Right. Or for that matter, the fact that I was questioning the the casting of, uh, of one of the actors in, in Steve Jobs or all the Angelina Jolie stuff, that kind of thing. Secondly, if your concern is really the pay inequality on American Hustle, why haven't you done any reporting right. at all? Why haven't you made a phone call to say, are these numbers accurate? Did Jennifer Lawrence come on the movie late when there was less money? Did she work fewer days? Does she have a bigger back end? Is that the reason why? Am I reading these numbers right? But that was, for me, the absolute low moment for the American press, which I'm happy to see is making a comeback. All right. The final thing is just this fun, quick, rapid fire. Who's the writer who's most influenced you? Patty Chasky. Who's the greatest working writer not named Aaron Sorkin? You can include me and it still (laughs) won't be me. Tony Kushner. Where do you do your best thinking and brainstorming? I get in my car when I need to have an argument with myself. I'll I'll drive (laughs) around. I'll turn on music, music I listened to in high school, and I'll try to start a fight with myself to see if I can get a a scene going. When I'm stuck during the day, I take about six to eight showers a day. I'm not a germaphobe (laughs) at all, but it gives me a a fresh start. I get get a do-over. I take a shower. I put on different clothes, and I kind of get to start the day I love it. I, we we spoke with Jerry Lewis shortly before he died. He said he has like three sock changes a day. I don't I don't I get, get it. it. <laughs> All right, where do you write? I write where we are right now in my office on the Warner Brothers lot, and I have an office at home where I write. On what do you write? I write on a Mac. Do you outline? I don't outline. I use index cards in a not very organized way. Do you write on a regular schedule for a certain amount of time in spurts or just whenever you're inspired? If I can write, I write. And if I can't, I obviously can't. But it's not on a schedule. But if I if I know what the next scene is, I'm writing the next scene. What's your greatest strength and greatest weakness as a writer? Well, my greatest weakness is that I don't get very many ideas. Plot is my greatest weakness. And I 
have to imagine that it goes back to Who's Afraid of Virginia mm-hmm. Woolf and the fact that I didn't understand what was going on up there. I love the dialogue. Dialogue was my way in. But all my friends who do what I do, they were the guys at summer camp sitting around the fire telling stories. I got a million of them. I don't have a million of them. Sure. And greatest strength? Greatest strength. I can type fast with two fingers. <laughs> two things seem to be featured in almost everything you write. Explorations of morality and explorations of what things are like behind the scenes, whether it's the White House or at Facebook or at a news network or at Apple or at a gambling operation. Why? Isn't everything behind the scenes, whether it's behind the scenes, an emergency room or a police precinct or a law firm or a family's kitchen? I just write things that are behind the scenes of things that aren't usually right, that we don't usually see. Theater, film or TV. If you could only write in one for the rest of your life, which would it be? I would be very sad if I could only write in one for the rest of my life because I love all three very much. But I guess theater. Last two, would you ever direct something that someone else has written? Well, never say never, but I I don't think I'd be good at directing something that someone else wrote. And then lastly, what is next? I've heard about everything from, I was at a luncheon where you talked about doing something with the documentary Best of Enemies, mm-hmm. something about Lucille Ball, To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway. What's real? What's not? What's next? I'm still eager to do, I, I optioned that documentary and I'm still eager to uh, turn it into a feature. But To Kill a Mockingbird is going to open on Broadway a year from Christmas, a year from December 13th. And tomorrow I go to New York for our first table read. I'm excited about that. And the next movie that I write is uh, Lucy and Desi. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Uh, Couldn't be a bigger fan of yours. Thanks so much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.